0: Today, we return to our series on the book of Revelation. The text is uh, the New Testament reading from Revelation chapter 3 to the church at Philadelphia. The church at Philadelphia is the sixth of the seven churches addressed in Revelation. It's one of only two churches which receives only commendation, only praise. No rebuke from the risen Christ. The city had a prosperous Jewish community called here. And we saw this way back with the church at Smyrna. It was, it's called the synagogue of Satan. And the relationship between the church and the synagogue looms large in the text. And also relevant, background for the text, is the fact that Philadelphia was hit by a devastating earthquake in 17 AD. And then it had numerous damaging aftershocks for many years after that. In fact, this whole region of Asia Minor is subject to earthquakes. And after this catastrophic quake, the empire relieved the city of paying tribute and relieve them of other taxes as a form of disaster relief to the city of Philadelphia to help enable the city to recover. And out of gratitude, Philadelphia erects a monument to Tiberius, who was the emperor at that time, and they renamed the city Neo-Caesarea, meaning Caesar's new city. And so this city, like all the cities really in in Revelation uh, chapters 2 and 3, like all of the cities the seven churches find themselves in, this city is closely tied to the service of the empire. So with that, let's take a look at the text. We have six headings. They're there in your bulletin. The second one is the open door. And the others are already written out. So... The first point is the address. The address. So the risen Christ is speaking here, if you'll recall. And what he says in his address to these churches is always profoundly relevant to what he's about to say to the church. So Jesus describes himself here as holy and true. And both of these attributes mark him out As divine. In the Old Testament, Yahweh is uniquely the Holy One. And in Revelation chapter 6, the Sovereign Lord God Almighty is called the One who is holy and true. And so here these titles are ascribed to the risen Christ. And the two of them together here are really another way of calling Jesus the faithful witness which is really his chief, his first, his main title in the book, is Jesus, the faithful witness. And in this context, it means he is about to bear true and faithful witness concerning this flock at Philadelphia. As opposed to what verse 9 will call the lies, the false witness borne against them by the synagogue. So the true witness is speaking. Again, Jesus narrates the world correctly. All narratives have to be corrected by what he says. And as the true witness, he is, verse 7 continues, he's the one who holds the key of David. The key of David. This is an allusion which goes back to the book of Isaiah, where the steward of the royal house, the house of David, is given a key. And the steward is told that he can grant access to the house or he can exclude people from the royal house. If you look in Isaiah 22 where this happens, the text there says that the steward of the house of David will hold the keys and he shall open and no one shall shut. And he shall shut and no one shall open. These are the same words used in our text here in verse 7 of the risen Christ. So this is significant. What, what Jesus is saying here is this. I am the master. I am the master of the royal house of David. Because I am the promised Davidic king. I sit on the Davidic throne. And thus, thus I admit or I exclude from the house of God. I hold the keys to the kingdom and not the leaders of the synagogue. Not the religious authorities. So in all likelihood, and we saw this again previously with Smyrna, the Jews had informed on the Christians to the imperial authorities And what this would do is this would remove the protections and immunities afforded by the Roman Empire to the Jews. The Jews had negotiated, essentially, a set of arrangements with the empire, which which protected them, at least technically, from committing idolatry by worshipping the emperor. So the Jews, among other things, would, would offer a sacrifice in the temple on behalf of the emperor. And they promised to pray for the emperor. And they didn't have to bow down and offer incense to the emperor. And so they had negotiated this arrangement as a kind of uh, exception, if you will, to all the other religious practices in the empire. Now, if you're a Roman official, or you're a Roman authority, and it's 90-something A.D., you don't know the difference between Jews and Christians. You just think that this... This is an intramural debate between Jews. Right, there's not two world religions at this time, Christians and Jews. There's just this sect which is spreading throughout the empire. And what has happened apparently is the Jewish authorities have gone to the Roman authorities and said they are not Jews. They do not get these protections. They have to bow and worship the emperor. That's what's the background here. And so there's a kind of slanderous informing on the Christians. And by this time, we know that the synagogues had had started to excommunicate Jewish Christians. And the synagogues had declared that all Christians are excluded from the people of God. So the point here, and it's a point of great moment and comfort for these suffering Christians... Is this, Jesus is saying, I determine who enters and who doesn't. And no excommunications, no public cursing, no declarations from the synagogue about your state, no informants to the Roman authorities mean anything. I open the kingdom to you and no one shuts it. No one shuts it. So the second point in verse 8 is this open door. The Lord encourages the church. He says, I know your deeds. Now that kind of that kind of statement from the risen Christ can sometimes be disturbing, but here it's meant to be comforting. See, I have set before you an open door that no one can shut. I've opened the door of the kingdom. You're entering the kingdom, but the open door here has a sort of another nuance, right? It carries the idea of an opportunity. This is the way we often use the word, the Lord opened the door. An opportunity for service, or an opportunity for witness. And the Lord commends this flock for its faithful witness at the end of verse 8. You have little strength, he says. Amen to that. You have little strength. Meaning, your social status and your importance in the world is almost non existent. You don't have much influence, especially compared to a large and well organized synagogue community. You're not a rich, happening church like Sardis. Sardis is a very wealthy church. You're a weak little flock. But remember, this is a word of praise. The Lord is not scolding at all here. He's comforting. He says, and yet you've kept my word. You've kept my word. You've not denied my name. It's important. Those are words we want to hear from the Lord. It doesn't mean they're not sinners. It doesn't mean they've kept it perfectly. But you're sitting here this morning, aren't you? That means you've kept God's word. And you have not denied his name. And that's what Christ says To this this church. I know your deeds. You've kept my word. No one's kept it perfectly except Jesus. That's not the point here. You've maintained the covenant. You have not denied my name. You're guarding the gospel. You've entered the open door. You're trying to walk in in, in in the way. And you're inviting others to enter. So he commends them. Third, let's look a little closer at this uh, synagogue of Satan. Um, The main point is that, which I just sketched, that the Jews have become accusers of the Christians. Satan means accuser. At the synagogue of the accuser. And so they have been accusing the Christians to the Roman authorities. So they they say, verse 9 says, they say... That they are Jews and they are not. So, one of the things Jesus is doing here is saying, I'll determine who's a Jew and who's not a Jew. You you can't let the culture determine this for you. You can't let your mother determine it. You can't can't let the broader society narrate these things. Jesus is the narrator of the world's story. So he says, when it comes to Jewishness, it's not a matter of ethnicity. It's a matter of faith in the Messiah. True circumcision is circumcision of the heart. Now, interesting, right? The Jewish Jesus is risen saying, I know they say they're Jews. They're not. And and not only does he say that they're wrong when they say they're Jews, the text says they lie. Only Jesus, the holy and true one, determines who is a Jew and who is not. This is part of what he's saying to this church on the ground. He's saying, sure, sure, they're going to the Roman authorities. They're saying you're not a Jew. Well, guess what? I say they're not Jews. So now who are you going to listen to? And in, in the second half of verse 9, the Lord says that he's going he's to make them, or at least some of them, come and bow down at the feet of the church. Learn that I have loved you. There'll be some acknowledgement that this this little flock at Philadelphia is beloved of God. You know, this is an ironic outcome. But you have all these Old Testament passages, especially in Isaiah, which speak of the Gentiles coming and bowing before Israel in the latter days. And Christ here has reversed the expected roles. So here you have a largely Gentile Christian church, the new Israel of God together with faithful Israel, faithful Jews, that's going to be acknowledged by the unbelieving synagogue of Satan. So the risen Christ is is essentially providing an ironic twist to the story. Now this could be, and it might entail even a prediction Of the conversion of these Jews. This is how, after all, Paul expected Gentile churches to work. They were to provoke, in a good way, in a holy way, the Jews to jealousy. To stimulate them to come to the Messiah. So that's the synagogue. The next is the hour of trial. Verse 10. Since you've kept my command to endure patiently. They followed the pattern. We see this throughout the book of Revelation. Why do we endure patiently? Because Jesus endured patiently. Why is the church called to be courageous? Because Jesus demonstrated courageous loyalty and perseverance. And the Lord promises to reward their faithfulness. He says, I'll keep you from the hour of trial, which is to come on the whole world, to test those who live on the earth. It's a very broad statement. It's very hard to pin down what judgment is in view. It's clearly widespread. It comes to those who dwell on the earth, which in the book of Revelation is a term, the earth dwellers, if you will, for God's human enemies, those who martyr, who murder the martyrs, and those who drink the wine of the Babylonian harlot, as we'll see later, those who worship the beast. They're called earth dwellers, those who dwell on the earth. And so it's probably best to see this as the coming judgments which are unfolded in the rest of the book, leading up to and including the end. And the Lord says to the church, I'm going to keep you from these trials. And this does not mean they're going to be raptured or they're going to escape them. That's an impossible reading of the book of Revelation. In some of these churches, Christians are already being martyred. The, the whole purpose of the, the seven letters to the churches in the book of Revelation is to steal the churches against the coming um, tidal wave of persecution. So this is the language of perseverance through something. The idea is God keeps us, as he, as he, will keep, as he kept them, from spiritual harm. He keeps us from apostasy, from falling. We have not denied his name. We have kept the faith, but he doesn't keep us from pain or from suffering. The whole book testifies that the faithful saints, while protected, sealed from the wrath of God, can be subject to and killed by the beast and the serpent. You have some pictures later. In the book, there's these saints in heaven. They're like, they appear as an army of martyrs in chapter 7. And there it's said of them that these have come out of or through the great tribulation. They certainly didn't escape it because they died as martyrs. And so to be kept here, when the Lord says, I will keep you from this hour of trial. It means the same thing. That it meant when Jesus prayed during his days on earth and said to the Father, I don't ask you to take them out of the world, but to keep them from the evil one. So this is an important text on this front as well, I think. Because it tells us exactly what we are promised and what we are not promised in our trials. We are promised... That, in the book of Revelation, that even if we suffer and die, no one or nothing can snatch us from Jesus' almighty hand. That's the promise of this book. There's no promise that you won't suffer or die. In fact, there are assurances to the churches repeatedly that they will. But the promise is this. No one, no thing can separate you from the love of God in Christ. No disease, no disappointment, no failure, no nothing. Nothing can separate you from the love of God in Jesus Christ. That's the promise. That's how God keeps and preserves His people by having us nurture ourselves, nourish ourselves on that promise. So, Fifth is holding fast. Verse 11, I'm coming soon. Hold on to what you have. This picture of of the fact that faith sometimes gets a little bare knuckled. You're digging in with your fingernails. You're trying to hold on. Jesus says, I'm coming soon. Hold on to what you have. So no one will take your crown. Of course, soon does not have to mean chronologically soon. Hopefully we know that by now. The final coming of the kingdom is always soon because it has already broken into time in Jesus Christ. The end is already at hand. And so in the meantime, the church as people living under the promise of this extensive coming trial and the coming of the Lord, the church is to hold fast to what they have. There's, there's no escaping that there's something um, anguished, if you will, or intense, something difficult about the Christian life. You have something you are going to have to fight to keep it. Right? It's, you're not gonna naturally keep it by waking up in the morning and going through your life and then going through the next day and going through the next day. You're gonna have to fight for it. The culture will wanna take it from you. People will wanna take it from you. Your family will wanna take it from you. There are principalities and powers. And so this, this, this word for hold on has to do with gripping to the thing. With with clinging to it, you know, for dear life. You have to hold fast. And this church is doing that well so far. There's a sense here that that you want to apply to your spiritual life, that old uh, civil rights ballad, right? Hold on, hold on, keep your eyes on the prize, hold on. The text says they are not to let anyone seize their crown. So, there's an awakeness we need, a vigilance. You have a crown. You have a treasure that's been entrusted to you. Are you guarding it? Are you holding to it? Nourishing it? Nurturing it? You have a crown. You have a crown. Don't let anyone seize it. They're already crowned, right? We we saw back in chapter 1 Christians are already kings. They must not throw away their destiny. It doesn't matter if we started well, if we did well in the middle. What matters at the end is how we finish. That's what holding on and not letting anyone seize our crown is about. It's about finishing. So you had a bad day yesterday, or an awful week, or an awful decade, right? Finish. Finish. University of Alabama just won the National College Football Championship. They had a one-word mantra. It's the right word, right? Finish. It was written on their locker rooms, on their walls, on their stuff. Finish. It's a great word. Finish. Don't let anyone seize your crown. And if it doesn't feel like you're going through life gripping something against the tide, then something's wrong, beloved. Because the Christian life is not a walk in the park. It's about enduring patiently and following the pattern of Jesus. That's what the church is commended for. But then they're encouraged, get your fingers around the thing, because people are going to want to wrench it out of your hand. Of course, the intensity of this and the difficulty of this is that, we, as we know ourselves well, we know that the enemies, they're inside the citadel. They're underneath our own skin. They're barnacled up underneath the hull of who we are. And that makes the battle much more intense. I remember years ago, a friend of mine, we were both young Christians, and he was... He had read some text like this, and he said to me, Kevin, I don't know about all this Satan stuff and all this evil one and all these powers. He goes, I seem to be just perfectly fine by myself to destroy my life. Like I've got enough enemies without having external enemies. Hold on. Finish. The sixth point is the conqueror's. This is a magnificent promise here. It really, It has four facets. The first is this. I'll make him a pillar in the temple of my God. Christ has already opened the door to the temple. Those who overcome will abide in the temple. This is a promise of stability. A pillar. And, and strength in the presence of God. And of the Lamb. And in the midst of the everlasting people of God. And remember, this is... This is a people whose city had been roiled by regular earthquakes. And the risen Jesus knows that. He knows they need some some news about a permanent structure. News of everlasting security. They themselves, he says, you who hold on, who finish, will be like pillars. Pillars. In Solomon's temple, if you remember, Solomon's temple had these huge pillars and they had names inscribed on them. And those names reflected the stability and the strength that the Lord God Almighty provides. I mean, we need stability. We're easily tossed. And we need strength because like the church here, we have little. We are weak. I know that you are weak. I know that you lack strength. And this is a promise of permanence. Notice the next phrase. They will never again leave it. The earthly temple, indeed all their earthly securities, might be destroyed. There's only one protected place. It's the heavenly temple. It's protected and permanent. You can move your money to Belize. You can do all sorts of stuff. But providence has a way of finding it. And there's three other facets of this great promise to the overcomers. The, the second, third, and fourth facets of this. But they really consist of one promise. Of writing three names on the overcomers. You'll see that there in the text. They're the name of my God, the name of my, the city of my God, which is further described as the New Jerusalem, which comes down out of heaven. And my own name. So there are three names here. The name of God the name of Christ, and the name of the city of God. Those are the names which are destined to be written on those who hold on, who don't let anyone seize their crown. Those three names. So, what do they mean? Well, in chapter 7, the army of martyrs, the servants of God, are sealed on their foreheads. And then in chapter 14, we see this triumphant army of saints in the heavenly Zion. We see them above. And we're told that they have the name of the Lamb and his father's name on their foreheads. Remember, just as an aside, we we said this, we've taken a hiatus on Revelation, so I want to remind you a big part of what John is doing is this I'm going to re-narrate the world to you. The Roman beast is stamping out Christians and pouring their blood all over their place. And, and you, you're terrified by this. But he is populating heaven with an army of martyrs. Right? That's what you need to see when this stuff is happening. Right? That's what he's essentially saying to the church. Don't just see it politically or socially or as some sort of a tragedy. Unmitigated tragedy. See what I see and I see a throng of martyrs around the throne. And they have the name of the Lamb and they have His Father's name. on them. And then at the end of the book, this new Jerusalem, the city of God descends and there it says God's servants see His face and they have His name on their foreheads. So the conquerors, the overcomers, are going to have the name of God the Father, the name of Christ, and the name of the city of God on them. By the way, this has already happened to you, in principle, and in part, if you've been baptized. Part of what baptism is, is God sealing you. Placing his name, the name of his Christ, and the name of the church upon and over the mantle of your life. And so, at this point, this becomes a text about identity. We're not identified in any lasting or significant way with any earthly institution. But Jesus says to this church in Philadelphia, you are named because you are loved by me. You're named and owned and fully identified with the living God, with his Christ, and significantly with the coming new Jerusalem, the city of God. I's interesting, there are three names: God, Christ and the city of God. And the reason the city of God is there is because that's the place where God and the Lamb dwell. It's the place of God's abiding presence. The city of God is the temple, and you're going to be a pillar in that temple if you overcome. You know what this means? It means to be permanently identified with God and with Christ, to know them now and in glory. Is also to be permanently identified with the temple, the sanctuary, the New Jerusalem, the church of the living God. There's no love of God and the Lamb apart from communion with His people. But how can we, John says, say we love God if we don't love our brothers who we see? There's three names. American Christians are good with the first two names. Me and God. Me and Jesus. It's the third name they don't like. They don't want the name of the city of God on them. And so this is a text then about identity. It's a text about security. These things are important in our culture today, in fact. Especially in the face of cultural hostility. Where's your identity? What would someone who followed us around for a week, where would they think our deepest identity lies? That's always an important question, I think, to ask ourselves. Is it family? Is it America? Is it your set of political convictions? What name is inscribed on the personal city of your life? This is not that hard to find out. Right? A person could find it out if they spent a day with you. I mean, it's one thing to say, yes, our deepest identity is as Christian. No, no one would not check the world. Everyone would get 100 if we had a test. <laughs> is your deepest identity and security in Jesus Christ? Choose yes or no. The question is worth 100 points. Right? Everybody passes that. But but that's not the point here. The point is identity and security surface in 10,000 ways. The Christians in Philadelphia, they lack security. They were disowned by the synagogue in their own city. And their, and their, their property and their houses were frequently destroyed by earthquakes. They needed a temple or a structure, a place of permanence. And the one who holds the keys who opens and no one shuts. He says that communion with him in the midst of his city, in the midst of his people, now, but especially in the age to come, he says that is your security. You know what's beautiful about this? It takes all the identity narratives which um, are riven and uh, royal against one another in our national life and says we can trans- transcend these halls. In Jesus Christ, every tribe, every tongue, every race, every sort of human being can find unity and their deepest form of identity by having this name and the name of this God and the name of this Catholic and international city imprinted on their lives. It doesn't mean people lose their distinctiveness. In fact, it means they find the full richness of their diversity in this unity. All other ground here is sinking sand. We are not given... Besides, every every piece of identity and security that everyone clings to that is not this is eventually taken anyway. We are not given any promises in Scripture. None. That are not finally this promise. These are all... This is the sum of the scriptural promises, eschatological communion in glory with God, the father and the lamb in the city of the new Jerusalem, in the restored creation with the saints. Short of then, everything can go wrong. (laughs) God will be good and faithful and loving in the midst of it. And God showers us with benefits every day and we rejoice in it. But this is the promise of scripture. I had a conversation, I can't remember who it was with, it might have been someone in this room, or it could have been someone at Presbytery. We were at Presbytery this weekend, uh, Bob Van Gent and myself up in Schenectady, but we were talking about the way you read the Psalms and the Proverbs, two books which seem to have in them a lot of promises which don't in fact hold. Right, That the wicked will always be punished and the righteous will always be safe and no disease will fall upon you and if you do this, you'll be blessed and if you do that, you'll be welcome. Right? And, and, and part of the discussion was to say, the problem with that approach is you're taking the text and you're just reading it as if it's directly a promise to you. But all the promises go through Jesus Christ, who, by the way, was not protected from anything was executed and mangled and slaughtered unjustly in the prime of his life, the Father's beloved Son, and through his resurrection. So finally, all the promises of God are yes and amen in him. So are all the promises of the Psalms true? Yes. Can I get a disease and die in this life? Because Psalm 92 seems to say I can't get any plague or disease. No, you can get a plague and a disease and die. Can I die in a plane crash? Because there's all these Psalms that say God will protect protect me from all harm. No, you can die in a plane crash. In fact, I know what the odds are. It's like one in eleven million because the Powerball people have told me what what the odds of a plane crash death are versus the odds of winning the Powerball. The point is so, so what do we do with all these texts that seem to make these promises? They're true in Jesus Christ. They're true eschatologically. Every promise of Scripture is at the end this promise. Communion with the Father and the Lamb in glory in the city of God. And so we should make it our prayer that God and the Lamb and the Jerusalem which are above be our identity, our security, our hope. That's what enables us to endure patiently, to bear witness here in the name of Christ knowing that God is going to keep you. And for those who conquer, who hold on, who finish, he's going to inscribe these glorious names, which are already in part inscribed on you, he's going to inscribe them on you fully and finally and completely. Amen.